I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for October has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. I'm going to open with our first sponsor this week because they're special, and this episode requires some, uh, some continuity. So this episode is brought to you by Text Expander Touch 3 with a custom keyboard that lets you expand keyboard shortcuts from Text Expander into frequently used text snippets on your iPhone or iPad. You can type with less effort and on your iPhone or your iPad and even grab your favorite snippets from your Mac. Thanks to iOS 8 custom keyboards, Text Expander makes uh, all your snippets available for expansion in any app on your phone or your iPad. And this is the first time this has ever been available. You can expand abbreviations in mail, Safari, messages, anything, uh, is anywhere you can use a keyboard. You can sync your snippets with Text Expander on OS X and additional iOS devices via Dropbox. Text Expander saves you time typing on your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod Touch, and it respects your privacy. And this is important. Uh, you get this uh, scary full access warning when you install a keyboard, any any iOS 8 keyboard. And Smile has gone to great lengths to make sure that uh, you maintain your security. So you can check that out at their blog, uh, smilesoftware.com slash blog. And uh, if you visit smilesoftware.com slash systematic, you'll get all the information you need on the new Text Expander Touch. So thanks to Smile for bringing you this episode of Systematic. My guest this week, uh, making his fourth appearance, is John Roderick, here to continue the tale of his life. How's it going, John? Good. It's not even the tale of my life, Brett. It's just the tale of my dumb music career. <laughs> I'll make the assumption that your your life gets even more uh, more interesting. Oh, the tale of my life would be 40 almost unlistenable episodes. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll instead, instead of just these four. We'll focus then. Okay, four so far. Let's see if we can <laughs> if we can get even close to an end. Well, okay. So when we last left off, you had you had made it. I'll leave it to people to go find the first three episodes at five by five TV slash systematic. Uh, but when we left off, you had with the long winters released your second album uh, around two thousand three, and half the band had left. Right, and well, and you thought you thought it might be over. Yeah, so half the band left after some serious touring to support that record. And, you know, what happened was we made the first album. It was, it was uh, like the first reviews of our first album were all really glowing, but it felt like a, it felt like a project album. It felt like a, like a secret pleasure uh, for certain people that that got it. You know, it wasn't an immediate, like that our first record came out right about the same time that the first shins record came out, the first Decembrist record and the first, um, the first new pornographers record and the new pornographers had mass romantic was the single off of that record. And it was just a dynamite hit. You know, it just sounded great coming out of the radio and the shins had, uh, their big hit from that first record that in some ways I think is still their biggest hit, right? What was that song called about, uh, 
Uh, it was the one on the movie that the yeah, where the, the girl great, was the like state, the Garden State soundtrack. The Garden one. State, yeah. yeah. That 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 song was just a dynamite hit, and it had a it had a really unique sound, a kind of quiet sound that belied like what a pop hit it was. And our first record, you know, the closest that we had to a hit on that record was um, the song Car Parts, but it didn't have you know, it, it didn't connect with the, the radio audience kind of the same way that those other hit songs did. And it was kind of understandable, right? The tempo was a little bit slower. It was, it was a, a busier production. You know, it was much more of a, we understood our place in the, in the firmament. But when, when we were preparing to release our second record, there was a lot of talk from people about like, this was a, this was going to be a dynamite record. It was going to launch our career. It it had a lot of hit songs on it um, that were going to be kind of inescapable on the radio. And there was a there was a lot of hype. And partly it was because our our indie rock label also felt like our label had had a lot of success with Death Cab for Cutie, but they hadn't managed to launch a second band. And there, in record labels, just as in bands, there is a concept of a sort of one-hit wonder. Like a, a record label can have success with one big band, but when, when they have success with a second band, that's when you know that they're kind of not just a flash in the pan. And so our label was really invested in our second record being a hit. And, of course, I was deeply invested in it because... Uh, when I put out the first record, I, I felt like it w- everything that was happening was just gravy. I, I I was prepared to quit music before that, and had been contemplating like maybe I, I would my life I would be a librarian or something. And now I had a record out, and it was in record stores, and it was number one in Seattle, and all these wonderful things, and it all felt like gravy. But by the second record, I had lost some of that gratitude and had started to develop some expectations. I was going to put out this album and then I was going to be talked about it in the, in these lofty ranks, like my favorite band at the time spoon or the new pornographers, like a band that I really, or built to spill indie bands, not huge bands, but indie bands that were kind of universally understood to be like, the producers of this sound and this culture. And so the, the record came out and we went out on tour and we toured and toured and toured. And we had a very good response. The reviews were all good for the record, but that little thing, which seems like a little thing, but it's actually a huge thing. That little element where your band catches fire and you just, you're, you're catapulted and, and I don't mean catapulted like into selling millions and millions of records, but there's some dividing line between selling 20,000 records and selling 50 or 60,000 records. And it's a, it's a dividing line that is, you know, between you and kind of ubiquity. You know, if you have sold 60,000 albums and, and and it's true of everything that happens in life. You always look to to that to that dimension that's right 
above you and you think, if I could just get there, if I could just sell 50,000 records, all my problems would be solved. And of course, when you do sell 50,000 records, then you're like, if I could just sell 100,000 records. But from my perspective, this we had had success and in, in, in a lot of ways had had success uh, greater than 95% of all indie rock bands. But we were, we didn't have that experience of, um, I, I, I was watching a DVD one time, uh, the guys in, in uh, Iron Maiden talking about what it was like for them in the early 80s. And their bass player was describing the scene and he said, you know, we released the album Peace of Mind and then from that day for the next six years, we never had bad news again <laughs> for six years. It was just like six years of good news. And that happens to indie rock bands too. You know, that happened to Death Cab for Cutie. Like they released their second record. And then they pretty much had six years of just good news. Uh, meaning that each new thing they made outsold the last thing. And when they would come through town, they would always play the next bigger venue, you know, and it, it starts to feel like it is a methodical process that you just keep going to these towns and you play this venue in Salt Lake city. And then the next time through you play the next venue up and you just keep building, building, building. And it all, it's tantalizing to think that it is a result of the work that you're doing, right? You're building this thing, like you're building a house. But in fact, that's only true if that's how it's happening for you. <laughs> and for most bands, that isn't how it goes. You go back and you play the same venue every time. And you're lucky to have as many people come as came before. The, I remember talking to Matthew Cause from Not A Surf. And he was like, you know, we do so well in Europe. We, you know, I think in, in France, they routinely sell 2,000 tickets to their shows. But he said, we've been playing the same venues for 10 years and we can't get to the next level, which is, in, and, and every band is conscious of what it is, the, the venue that's just a little bit bigger than the one that you're playing. And from my perspective, you know, Matthew was complaining about a thing that I could only dream of selling 2,000 tickets in France. But it's a, uh, it's a uh, you know, I think it's maybe universal but we had gone out and toured and toured and toured on this second record and we all felt this tremendous like potential energy this record was going to catch fire and it sort of did just enough that we were in a position to look around and say what are we doing wrong and of course you start uh, if you're me, you start calling your record label and yelling at them. <laughs> what did you, you know, because you show up into town and, you know, you're, and your record is in five of the record stores, but it's not in the sixth one. And you're like, why the hell isn't it in the sixth one? Or you're, you, you open up the alternative weekly and there's no review or there's a middling review and you're, and you have to be mad at somebody because it feels like every one of these little elements might be the the tiny little thing that is keeping that's holding you back. You, you might get to this, but do you think that's do you now? Given your perspective now, do you think that's fair? Because I I think it is. I think a band can make great stuff, and bands do every day. 
but if they're not marketed well, if they're not marketed properly, they disappear just like bad or good apps that didn't get noticed on the app store. Do you think? Yeah, but the pro the problem with marketing is that again, it it seems like a science when it works. And and when it works, when you have when you're marketing a band like Death Cab for Cutie, you can say, "Well, I bought this ad and I called that radio station and I did this and that and this and then the band sold a million copies." And it feels like I just did this and that and I and I made a thing. But then the next band comes along and you do exactly those same things. Exactly those same things. And it doesn't happen. And so you are left wondering what the hell happened the first time. And if you're, if you're in a band that that works for and then it doesn't work for everybody else, well, it's very tantalizing for you to say the reason it worked for us is because we are great. We are better than other bands. I mean, but then you get a band that is like amazing. I mean, I've seen even, I've seen lots of, lots of friends of mine who are in hugely successful bands who then pick, hand pick a young band that they think are amazing. And they say, people love me and I'm going to anoint this young band with my magic finger and I'm going to make them huge. And then that doesn't work. And the, and the, the the singer who you know was sort of cultivating this feeling within themselves that that they had the magic then they realize that that magic isn't transferable and they're not you know they're not able to do this and and our record label uh was run by some young and really intelligent really creative people and they had the the feeling that a young band has which is that their success was kind of inevitable because of course they have a better idea and of course they know how to do this better than other people do. And they were doing everything they could to sell the long winner's record, but they're devoting their resources where they think it matters. And I'm yelling at them to spend their money over here where I think it matters. And the reality is it's not a science because if it were a science, I mean, and then there, then you have these guys these uh, these producer cats that become very successful in Los Angeles, where it does feel like they have magic and they create they create hit after hit after hit, but then that then it stops working for them too. You know, they have two or three years where they're on top of the world and then it goes away. Anyway, in two thousand three, the Long Winters in in what felt like a pretty stable incarnation. Michael Schilling on drums, Eric Corson, Sean Nelson, and me, the four of us went all around the world and we had really good success. We went to Europe. We did, you know, what was a pretty great tour, but it didn't ignite. And when we got back and the, and Michael and Sean left the band. It seemed like a reasonable thing for them to do because it felt like they had done the, they had done the thing. This was as good as it was going to get. It didn't turn into a situation where none of us had to work. And they kind of looked at the future and they said, you know, I, I, it's completely reasonable to, 
to spend seven more years at this level, but it just doesn't feel like it's going to uh, transform our lives. And we're just going to go get on with ourselves. And Eric Corson and I were, you know, we wanted to keep the ball rolling. And at this point we did have enough, we did have to have a head of steam and we were critically acclaimed. And so we went into the studio right away and started work on a new album that was going to be a, uh, maybe a different sound, right? And, and I was reading reviews and this is kind of before the internet was a place where everybody posted their thoughts. I was reading reviews in magazines and taking it to heart in a way that, that I know now maybe is unwise. And every artist has to face this in their own way. But, you know, I'd read a review and they'd say, this record was really good, except the songs were a little bit slow and not punk enough. And I would be like, right, faster songs, punky punkier okay and then i'd read the next review and they'd say i listened to this record and i listened to the new ted leo record and i liked them both uh they they have a lot of similarities but the ted leo record felt like he really had a lot of sass and the long winters record didn't have as much sass and i'd be like right okay sass gotta be sassy like ted leo little punkier faster songs and then I'd read a review and it would say, yeah, the long winters make this really epic pop music. And I just wish that they wouldn't keep trying to be so like poppy. And, and I wish they would just let their epic freak flag fly. And I'd be like, right. Epic. Okay. Epic. Sassy. You know, and I'm just, I'm making this like jumble in my mind about, am I trying to like the first two records? I wasn't trying to please anybody. I was just writing songs like out of my hair. Uh, because I was upset that I couldn't make a relationship with a girl work. But all of a sudden, I'm, I, have a, I have feedback. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make an album that captures all this energy that people were directing at me. Like, you are, you're going to be a big artist if you just had a good marketing campaign and just had a song that was a little sassier and punkier. And so we went into the studio and I didn't really have a, I didn't have 10 finished songs. I had some, I had a couple of songs. I had some song ideas and we started working. We were recording with a guy named Tucker Martin who went on later to, uh, you know, make a couple of Decembrist records and become a big, a sort of a big producer. But at the time we were recording in his basement and we got into this posture. We didn't really have a band. It was mostly just me sitting on the couch and Tucker would cue up a track and he would say, what do you want to do? And I'd say, oh, I kind of want to play the distorted bass and Tucker would go pick a bass off the wall. He'd plug it into a distortion box and into an amp and he would cut. And I'm just lying there on the couch with, you know, one hand draped over my eyes and he would hand me this live instrument and he would push record and I would play a thing and he would record it. 
and he would go, okay, now what? And I'd say, I think I want to play the harpsichord. He would find a harpsichord and plug it in and put, you know, like the entire harpsichord he would pick up and put in my lap. And we worked for months this way, making a thing and kind of putting it together, taking it apart. And so concurrently with this, the, the business people, the, the record label and my booking agent, the people on the business side were saying, you got to get back out there. You got to go back out on tour. You got to capitalize on this energy and this, uh, this critical acclaim that you're receiving. And so I said, all right, well, book, well, I'll find a drummer and, you know, just, uh, just say yes to everything. And so I went and I, and I talked to Death Cab for Cutie's old drummer. Now, Death Cab for Cutie has had a consistent lineup through their whole time together, except for the drummer. The drummer has changed many times. And their original drummer was a guy named Nathan, who was just an just a absolute uh, prodigy, just a genius. And uh, their second drummer was a guy named Michael Shore. And Michael was a good friend of ours. And I went to him. He had... He had left Death Cab for Cutie and had quit music, was working at a record store. And I went and I said, hey, why don't you be the drummer in the Long Winters? And he accepted right away. And I said, great, we've got some touring coming up. We're going to go rehearse, get ready, go out on tour. We're not done making our new record yet. We'll get you in on that. It'll, you know, we're going to be a family. And we went out as a three-piece, Michael, me, and Eric. And our, the tours that we booked were, we went out with the Pernice brothers for a month around the United States. And then the last Pernice brothers show was like on a Thursday. And the following Monday, we started a European tour that was a month long. We got back from the European tour and I think played a show for with the Decemberists maybe the next day, two days later, something like that. I mean, this, uh, these tour dates are online if you want to see what the, uh, what the actual – I may be misremembering it. But within a couple of days on, of getting back from Europe, we were supposed to go out, play the uh, Sasquatch Music Festival, and then leave on tour with the Decembrists for a month. So it was three straight months uh, with, a, with a month in Europe in the middle – and uh, we went out on tour, and really the Pernice Brothers dates were kind of a mistake, not in the sense that the Pernice Brothers aren't amazing, but really at that moment in time, it, the role should have been reversed. The Long Winters should have headlined that tour. But we were, the Pernice Brothers were kind of legendary to us. We deferred to them. Of course, we'll open for them. They're like a legendary band. And it, that's one of those things where you look back and you think, if we if that had been a long winter's headlining tour would that have been would that have changed our lives in some way because you know people look in the newspaper at who's coming to town and they they don't really half the time they don't look at see who the first support band is they just look at the headliner and those shows were like under attended and a lot of the people that came to the shows were there to see us. And I feel like maybe if we had flipped 
the the roles, it would have been a that would have been the thing that catapulted us to the next level. I mean, you can go crazy uh, trying to look back in time and think what were the mistakes? How could we have done it differently? But then we went over to Europe and about halfway through the European dates, Michael Shore, who had already been in Death Cab for Cutie and had, and had left that band, Michael Shore said, you know what? Uh, this isn't really for me. I don't like this. We've been on tour for a month and a half. I miss my lady. I miss knowing where I miss my pillow or whatever. You know, a common feeling of a person in their 30s. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And unfortunately, we had a month and a half left of touring. And Michael Shore is the kind of guy who, when he made a decision like that, he was just like, well, yeah, I kind of don't want to do it anymore. And we had a, a really rough few weeks where he didn't want to be there. And we were still playing shows every night. And the, the, it was a very tense atmosphere in the van. And, you know, uh, it, it ended up being a thing where we, you know, we had some screaming fights. But he persevered. And we made it through that three-month period. But let me tell you, by the end of that, exhausting three months um we were we were crushed and what really drove the final nail in the coffin was we went out on that the the third leg of that three-month tour was opening for the decemberists and at the beginning of that leg of shows the relationship between the decemberists and the long winters was kind of similar to the Pernice Brothers won. Like the Decemberists had sold a few more records than we had. But when we played in Seattle together, we were the headliners and the Decemberists opened. Like we, we more or less felt like we were peers. But that was the tour, the national tour, where the Decemberists blew up. They had just released Her Majesty, the Decemberists. And that was the record that, where things caught fire for them. And exactly this process I'm talking about where there's just no bad news. The first, and, it, and, it, and it happened on that tour. Like the first several shows of that tour were uh, maybe right before the record came out or within the week. And there were only 100 people there. The first show we played together after Sasquatch was in Salt Lake City. And the Long Winters actually got paid more than the Decemberists for the show because we had a guarantee and they were taking the door deal. And there were so few people there that, you know, whatever, the thousand bucks that we were getting paid was more than, than they earned. But by halfway through that tour, by the time we got to Boston, uh, the shows were selling out. And the shows were getting moved to bigger venues. So we went from 400-seat theaters to 800-seat theaters and then to 1,200-seat theaters. And everywhere we went, sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out. And every newspaper you picked up, the article said, the Decemberists are making an erudite kind of pop music where the lyrics are really smart and it's music for smart people and cool, smart, awesome pop music people. Which I personally felt like was my... <laughs> That was, that was supposed to be me. 
right? I was supposed to be the the songwriter that people were saying this is the this is pop music for this new generation of people who are interested in lyrics and people who want to dig into pop music and hear the hear something more. And I was in I mean like fundamentally devastated because this this little uh, this little thing that was supposed to happen where you're where you throw the match into the into the powder keg and boom off you go it was happening right in front of me to a band that i you couldn't argue that their songs were were great catchy uh, uh, Colin Malloy has a kind of melodicism, a melodic gift where he doesn't sing super high or super low, but those melodies are catchy. First time you hear them, and 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 he does have a kind of whimsical, dark smartness that was unique. I couldn't argue with it, but it was happening right in front of us, and we were at that stage. A three-piece band instead of what I imagined, you know, and, and they were a five-piece band that had banjos and violins and organs and all this great musicianship. And we were kind of struggling to get all of our songs out in this three-piece format. And our drummer didn't want to be there. And it was evident that he didn't. And night after night, I kind of was out there uh, preparing a room full of people who more or less could have given a shit about us because they were on this, they were kind of, you know, these, the first generation of bandwagon fans, right? People that are just like, I'm going to see the December. It's the hot new band. And they're not maybe deep in the indie rock scene or, or, or maybe they are, but they, or maybe they think they are, but they're not. And so we'd have to go out every night and win over this crowd of eight or 900 or 1,000 sort of arms-crossed, uh, cardigan-sweater-wearing <laughs> college hipsters. It was soul-killing. And there was a lot of tension between us and the Decemberists because I think I was bringing a lot of tension into every room I entered. And there was tension within their, their band too. I mean, you know, they were, they were handling their new fame kind of uh, in their own way uh, and struggling within the band. And then, you know, our band was, was dissolving. And again, Eric Corson being in, in some ways like the rock through everything. Eric was, Eric had become a, a, a road warrior and he just liked to play music and he kind of was either above or to the side of this kind of uh, fraught anxiousness. He didn't care. He just, as long as there was an audience there and he could play music for them, he had, uh, he had a good attitude and that was more than I could say for myself. Anyway, we got done with that tour I went back into the studio with Tucker Martin and he and I worked on this album for months and months and months. 
and uh, there was no kind of end in sight. I didn't really have 10 or 12 songs good enough to, to, to make it on an album. And Tucker was a producer who was willing to just let the, let the day go where the day takes you. Tucker never said, Hey, we need to, you know, you need to have these songs done by Tuesday or, you know, he never lowered any kind of boom. He just showed up and was like, that's fine. And I think Tucker was willing to work on songs that he didn't like, but he was willing to work on them in the sense that he would spend hours and days working on them, but he didn't like them. So he wasn't really, um, he didn't see that he, he maybe, uh, was sabotaging them. Yeah. So is this, is this a good thing or a bad thing? No, that's a tough thing to say about, about working with somebody. Um, it was, it was, it wasn't a good thing. You know, I think the, the role of a producer, the role of the producer has changed a lot from the days when people wore white lab coats. And we've gone through a long period where if you could, if you had, if you learned the technology of being a recording engineer, you could record bands in your apartment and you were effectively a producer. But really you were engineering the record and the production falls into this other category of saying like, here's, it's not just like do another vocal take, but like, here's what I heard happening in that last vocal take. Here's what I'd like you to think about going into the next vocal take. It's being able to say like, I don't think this song is of the same caliber as the other songs. And I think we should stop working on it. Or I think you should, you should make a case for why we should keep working on it. And if you can't, we should just get away from it because we're wait, we're, we're turning, we're spinning our tires. Like that's in the, that falls into the production category where there isn't a technical side to it. It's a kind of artistic, emotional side. And I've worked with a lot of people who are very, very good at engineering records but you go in there and you do a vocal take and you say, how, how was that? And they say, uh, it was good. And you go, really? Seriously? I just did a vocal take. Like you're telling me it was good. Mm-hmm. Like, give me something, give me something to work on like that. I need, you know, when you're doing vocals, you need somebody on the other side of the glass. That's giving you heavy, heavy. Critique. Uh, that's well, that's working with you heavily. Like that's it. That that's a person at their most vulnerable. And you need to be able to shape what they're doing in a way that empowers them, right? And it's why over the years I sometimes bring Sean Nelson into the studio when I'm recording vocals. Because Sean is able to say things, you know, he'll look up from a magazine and say, I don't really, I wasn't really believing you on that last take. And you know what he means. And you go, right, I wasn't believable. And he's like, yeah, you know, you have to like get inside the lyrics and tell me what you, tell me what you want me to hear. You know, like... Talk, communicate with you as a, as a performer. And so the, the relationship between Tucker and I was very friendly and we're very creative. He's an enormously creative producer. But he never drew a line or, or said, um, you know, he never said like, mm, I don't think this is, I think we need to stop. And so we spent a lot, I mean, 
recording that third record cost me three times what recording the second record cost because we were paying by the day and no one ever said stop. And we worked on it for six months or nine months until Tucker wanted to start doing something else, you know, until he was like, I've got some other bands that are booked. Hmm. And the thing just kind of ground to a halt. So at this point, I'm 35 years old. I made a pretty good run at being an indie rocker, but I've lost, I, I lost half my band and then I lost the replacement drummer and I've poured money into making an album that I can't seem to finish and don't see. And I, and I don't even, I mean, sitting here with the tracks, I don't see an end even now. And people, you know, I'm getting emails all the time from people saying like, you got to get us, you got to get another record out. Like, Strike while the iron's hot. People are talking about you guys. You're, you're, you're like on the verge of being a huge band. And I, I just, the wheels came off of me. And I spent the next year. So this started happening in about the fall of 1990, or I'm sorry, 2004. I spent a year just sitting in my bed. I grew my beard really long. I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese. And I could not muster up the, the energy to rejoin any of, of these games. At one point, I flew down to Texas and tried to record, re-record some of the songs that I'd worked on with Tucker, re-record them with uh, Centromatic from Denton as my backing band. And that didn't really come together either just sort of like flopped around. And I went back to Seattle and I just went, I went back to bed, pulled the covers up over my nose and uh, pretty much stayed in bed for a year. But I got to ask, did you at that point, did you let go of anything? Did you, did you give up? No, I mean, one of the things that has one of the ways that I manage depression, which is a thing I've suffered from my whole adult life, is that I don't manage it. It sometimes completely lays waste to me uh, for months at a time. But my saving grace is that there's always some some fight in me. Right, the fight never completely goes out of me, and even if I'm laying in bed with the covers pulled up to my nose and my head is full of dark thoughts. There's always a voice in there that is fighting. And a lot of times they're fighting with each other, but they are, but I am, I am in the fight. I never surrender. I never, I never say like life isn't worth living or, uh, or that I can't go on. I always feel like I can go on it's just that I am going on in a miserable slog across a burnt out hellscape, but I am going on. I actually know that feeling. So I can relate to that. Yeah. 
and and it's the difference, you know, like when Robin Williams killed himself, it was it had a profound effect on me. Yes, me too. Uh, and you know, and the then the thought that of all the terrible days in his life, of all the crazy shit that had happened to him, there finally was a day where he couldn't go on. That was devastating to me because I know he had had worse days than that one. He'd had plenty of worse days, terrible days, but there was fight in him and he, and he persevered. And then, you know, to the awareness that at 60 years old, the fight can finally go out of you, pretty sobering. But for me, and even still, I mean, I still wrestle with uh, depression all the time, but I, there's fight in me. And so I, I was, I was laid waste by all these experiences and they are, you know, from, from the perspective of someone who put out a record and nobody bought it, it seems like the the problems that I had are problems that it would be be nice to have, Hmm. you know, that you're, that you're, uh, that people keep telling you that your band is the next big thing. That's, you know, that's not the worst thing that could happen, but I was not able to, I was not able to see my situation as a, uh, an enviable one or even a one that I could really comfortably live in. It was, I, I, I was sort of creatively thwarted. I had all these unmet expectations that, that combined with my, you know, my natural, um, um, uh, rather my, my nature, my dark brooding, temperament to put me into a state where it felt like I, uh, I had been offered the opportunity to really offer to, to really participate in the world and, and, and be a, a real contributing member to the world. And I had somehow squandered it. It had been a slippery football and I'd had it in my hands a few times and I'd, and I'd, I dropped it. I'd missed my chance. And so, uh, yeah, so I had, a, I had a really bad year in 2005. And at one point, I was talking to a friend of mine whose name is Mike Squires, and he was the guy who had gotten me into Harvey Danger in the first place, the guitar player, Mike Squires. And I was playing him some of the stuff that I'd worked on with Tucker. And Mike... Uh, for whatever else you might say about him, he, along with my mom and a couple of other people, has just been a relentless supporter of me over the years. And he said, listen, you've got great songs here. You know, The Commander Thinks Aloud was one of those songs that we were working on. And that was a song that, you know, immediately connected with people. And he was like, you've got a great, you've got a great record here. We just need to, we just need to finish it up, go on tour, get back in the game. And I was, uh, I wasn't convinced. I was, ugh, I, I couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't draw me out. And then out of the blue, spring of 2005, I get an email from the band Keen uh, from London. And they said, hey, we have some friends in common. They gave us your record. We think it's amazing. They're, they're talking about 
pretend to fall. We think your record's amazing. We would love you to go on tour with us. And Keen were in the, in the, prospe- uh, in the process of blowing up. They were uh, an enormous band in Europe and in the UK, number one record. And they were coming to America and their record was doing really well and they were playing all these storied rooms like the Ryman Auditorium and the Greek Theater and all these, you know, it was a big, big rock show. And they wanted us to open for them. And it was a, a classic case of like, there are some bands that go out on tour and whoever the openers are were just picked by their label or their management. And there are other bands that reach out and find bands that they like and take them out on tour. And this was one of those. And I wrote them back and I was like, well, I don't really have a band. And they said, put a band together because we're going out on tour together. And so I called up Mike Squires and I was like, Keen wants to go on tour. And he said, great, let's put out the, let's take the five best songs uh, that you recorded with Tucker Martin, put it out as an EP. We'll go, we'll take it out on the road. We'll go out with Keen. And so we rushed it together, rushed this EP together. We, Mike got his old bandmate Nabil Ayers to be our drummer. And we rushed a set together, learned the songs on the EP, which were very hard to learn because they were all, there were harpsichords all over them. And we went out, went out with Keen. And all of a sudden, you know, the first show that we played with Keen was in uh, the parish in Atlanta. And it's this giant venue. We hadn't played it. I hadn't played a live show in, in, uh, year and a half close to two years actually and walked out on stage and was just and Keen's audience is an, is incredibly supportive like we we stepped out on the stage and they like cheered like we were big stars and I got back on the horse I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe how that whole process worked I just was like I have a new album a little you know an EP which always felt like an EP was kind of a thing that cool bands put out, right? It ne- you, never, you never feel like an EP is just a record that didn't get finished. You always feel like an EP is kind of a bold statement from a band. Like, oh, yeah, we just got an EP here, you know, a couple of few songs that we don't even, you know, just tossing them off. I, th- I think there's a line between, like, the, the basement band that finally puts together an EP and is really proud to release it and the band that doesn't have to do the EP. Mm-hmm. So I, I would agree with that in the second, in the latter sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I was hoping that people saw it that way. I was hoping that people were like, wow, the long winners came back with an EP. That's clever. <laughs> so we put out this EP and it has the song commander thinks aloud on it. And that song really connected with people and resonated with people in a new way. It was a different sound for us. And it was a song that, you know, it was effortless for me to write in the sense that every once in a while you sit down at an instrument and you just write a song and you don't know where it came from. And it just, it's, you finish it that afternoon. And the commander thinks aloud was one of those where it was just like, Oh, I have an idea for a song and there it is. So I was, I had a band and everybody in the band, they were friends of mine. It wasn't like a band of hired guns. It was, I Mike Squires is like a brother to me and Nabil um, was a guy I'd known for a long time and liked a lot. And we were, 
we were a band. We were play, we played the Greek theater in Los Angeles, like pretty magical night. And I remember sitting backstage at the Greek theater, which is this area with like lots of uh, strings of lights hanging from the trees. And we're sitting at a table and looking around at the, at the hoi polloi or the, uh, the VIPs who are in this backstage area. And Keen were, were very young at, at the time and they all had on tight pants and pointy shoes and they were looking pretty cool. And there were some um, movie stars there backstage. And there were some stars, uh, people that I recognized from television or from ma- uh, in-flight magazines, you know, like attractive people that I had seen in in-flight magazines. And I was like, wow, you know, there's like, it's Hollywood. We're having a Hollywood experience here. And then these two young women who I recognized from television walked over. Yeah, because it's Hollywood, right? So nobody's, nobody walks over. Everybody just kind of stands and sort of shifty-eyed, looking around, always looking over your shoulder when they're talking to you, kind of looking around. But nobody, nobody makes the overture. And these two uh, TV stars came over and they were like, we came to see you. We're huge Long Winners fans. And I was like, this is what it feels like to be <laughs> in the Decemberists, right? This is what it feels like to have everything start working your way. Like there are TV stars who want to talk to me and uh, it feels really good. So we got back from that tour and I had, I had banished the, the specter of depression because I'd had some good news. A, a few little increments of good news that, that had, that, you know, it was, it was good news propelled by friends, right? The guys in Keene became my good friends and, and they were promoting us, although it had no financial or there were, there was no reward for them other than that they thought they'd found something really good that not enough people had heard. And they wanted to use their fame and their bully pulpit to put it out there. And my friend Mike was pushing me to make another record. And we went into the studio immediately after that Keen tour and recorded Putting the Days to Bed. And in that moment, like I felt like I had figured everything out. The solution was to not obsess over your music the solution was to just go into the studio and crank a record out and then when you're done go in again and crank another one out and i wasn't going to let anybody produce me anymore i was going to produce this record myself and i had my guys and we were going to we were going to make this album and it was just going to be down and dirty and it was going to be sassy and punky and ted leo had better watch out but it was still going to be smart, so the Decembers had better watch out. Everybody had better fucking watch out. And we went into the studio. We made this record with a guy named Floyd Reitzma um, doing the engineering. And Floyd was like this imperturbable guy who just got it done and was really good. And he was like had way more studio experience than me, but he was he was fine with me producing the record, producing in quotes, you know, um, because. A, a lot of that kind of a lot of that self production that you do 
really depends on the fact that your engineer is good and knows what to do. So you go to him and you go like, let's get a drum sound. And he goes out and puts a bunch of mics up and he's like, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, what if the toms were a little bit tommier? And he turns some knobs and he's like, what about this? And you go, yeah, that's great. Well, it, it was Floyd that got the drum sound. But, you know, I was producing it, right? So it's a little bit of a, I mean, from Floyd's perspective, it's very generous of him to not say like, hey, you know, I'm kind of producing this record too. And it falls into this, again, question of like, what is engineering a record and what is producing it? But I was convinced that I was going to produce the shit out of this thing. And I did. I produced the ever-loving mother out of this album. And what that meant was that I basically tried to play everything myself and the things that I couldn't play myself, I would sit in the studio and I would, somebody would play a take and I would push the button and go like, yeah, that was pretty good, but what if you did it exactly differently from how you just did it? <laughs> and, I, and I think it was, you know, I was, I was a, uh, I was dictatorial. And by the end of that recording session, my relationship with Mike Squires had become really impacted because, you know, Mike would sit in there and play a thing and I would say, yeah, that was good. What if you played it this different way? And then he, because of his nature being what it is, he would play it really lacklusterly. You know, like, oh, you mean like this? And I would go, no, why don't you play it, you know, like I said. And he would go, oh, you mean like this? And then I would say, no, get out of there. I'm going to play it myself. And it wasn't funny. We were, you know, we were, uh, we were fighting. And there's a, you know, and there, there are a lot of reasons why Mike and I probably shouldn't be in a band and, and. A, a big one of them is exactly this kind of personality thing. Like Mike, uh, Mike was in the United States Marine Corps and like went to war against the Marines at one point so that, so that the Marines kicked him out. I mean, Mike is not, he's not, uh, if, if you go to war with Mike, he's going to go to war with you. He's not somebody that's like, okay, boss, whatever you say. And by the end of this recording process, Mike, was, Mike left the band, quit the band in the studio while we were finishing the album. And more or less out of spite, I went back and either re-recorded all the things that he had recorded or just muted them so that Mike barely appears on Putting the Days to Bed. He's, his, his guitar is maybe on two, two songs. You know, it was, a, it was a, uh, an uncomfortable and rough um, recording session. But when the record was done, it had what I felt were all the elements that all the magazine articles had claimed were missing from past Long Winter's records. It was sassy. It was punky. It was... The tempos were fast. It had corrected the mistakes if any if it could be said that we had been making mistakes the whole time before this was the antidote to that and again every single person i talked to in the music business said that this was going to be the 
you know, the era-defining album. And it came out, and really good things happened. We went on tour. We toured all over uh, the, again, like all over. And the response was, was fantastic. Um, the uh, uh, Menomina opened for us on a tour. We had, uh, we had shows in Europe that were, that were just spectacular. And I mean, uh, the, the, whole, the whole Europe question is one I haven't really delved into, but we had a couple of record labels over there, one in the Netherlands and one in Spain. And we we had really good responses in Europe, but it was also really hard to make money in Europe. And we kept going over there and kept having incredible experiences with the fans and with the shows and in the towns, just like spectacular adventures. But those tours would just beat the shit out of you. And then you'd get home and you'd have no money because it just was so expensive to go there and be there. And you'd come home and it was like, oh, yeah, well, we just spent a month of our lives over there having a wonderful time. But we don't, you know, like we made a thousand dollars and here's, you know, everybody gets 250. Like, well done. Not not super good uh, as a business plan. And our American label didn't really, you know, couldn't figure out how to support us in Europe and so eventually wash their hands of it completely. And we were on our own dealing with people who were, you know, maybe not giving us all the money. In some cases, most definitely not giving us all the money we were earning. And you didn't have any recourse. So we got back from what had been a solid year and a half of just straight up kicking it touring and playing big shows and feeling like feeling like the the experience was kind of commensurate with expectations we were going back to towns we'd been to many times and we were playing bigger rooms people liked our record we had longtime fans who had helped us over the years it felt like we had built a thing And we got back to Seattle and it was time to go into the studio with what I had learned before, which is don't be precious about your tunes. Go in there, crank 10 songs out, make it rock and roll, get that record out, get back out on the road, yippity-doo. We went into the studio and uh, we started recording with my old friend John Goodmanson. And I didn't have 10 songs done. I had a lot of ideas. And then in quick succession, I knocked my front tooth out on a microphone. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> completely, completely gone. Knocked it completely out. My dad died. I bought a house. Uh, I found a cat that I really liked. Then the cat died. I started to grow my hair long. I was living out in this house where I had no, I mean, the house was just enough outside of town that nobody ever stopped by. And I, John Goodmanson had a kid and stopped working on our record and Eric Corson and I 
took the record over ourselves and now we were recording ourselves in the basement of our own home. Like we, we built a studio in my basement and we're working on a, a record. We worked on it every day. There were 14 songs, 13 songs. And we worked on that record every day for two years. And we made a thing. We made a beautiful thing. An album that had perhaps every melody that God would allow. (laughs) Every melody in history on every song. Like the bass lines were melodic, the guitar parts were melodic, the tambourine parts were melodic. (laughs) And we were working on this thing and we did not, either of us, have the ability to say stop. Eric didn't have the ability to tell me to stop. And I didn't have the ability to tell myself to stop. And little by little, the guys who were in the band at that point, uh, a really talented guy named Jonathan Rothman and Nabil Ayers, they both were like, well, we're going to move to New York because, you know, this was the tour. When we had been touring together, the two years that we were out on the road, it was the finally the year where we would go to New York and play a show and spend a week there. And it felt like we're, we could kind of move to New York. We're sort of almost, we could be a New York band. Like we're popular enough now and we're making enough money now as a, as a band that we, we did have that feeling of like, we're citizens of the world. Like I've spent more time in Berlin this year than I've spent in Seattle. We should just move to New York. We, I mean, you know, at that, when when things are really happening for you in that way, it feels like you should move to an aircraft carrier. It feels like you should move to a space station. Like you feel so, um, at home everywhere. And both Jonathan and Nabil, like we felt we had such a good time when we were in New York, the, you know, by which I mean the many, many, many times in that two year period that we were in New York, we probably were there 15 times for a week each time. And it was just like, we, we should just all be here. And those two guys actually moved there and I considered it. But Eric and I were like, okay, we're going to finish this record and we're going to get it done and then we're going to put it out and we're all going to get the band back together and it's going to be incredible. We're going to take over the world. And just little by little, we basement studioed ourselves into a situation where the record like started to not make sense anymore and then it started to really make sense and we started to understand that no one else in the world could understand what we were doing. <laughs> And we were making a thing that, you know, that, that had no beginning, middle or end. And maybe it was all one song and maybe we would only release it on, on uh, wax cylinder. <laughs> and at this point, my hair was two feet long. I had never fixed my missing tooth. Uh, so I was, I mean, uh, the people that lived in my neighborhood were terrified of me, I would, I would drive up in, you know, in some old tour van and k- climb out and, you know, kids would run because I looked like a, a, a character from a brother's grim, <laughs> you know, like the, tr- like a troll. And 
sort of one thing after another. First, Jonathan Rothman said that he was going to go back to school and become a math teacher. That was his dream. And he was going to teach math to kids in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And then Nabil happened to be at a cocktail party and uh, he was talking to a guy and the guy was like, you know, I'm the head of four AD records in England and I'm looking for an American president of four AD. Would you be interested in the job? And Nabil's like, yeah. And two weeks later, he's the president of four AD. And so once again, my band was gone. Uh, and this was a band that had, that didn't break up because of because there was strife. Nobody quit the band because it was too hard. Or be, I mean, everybody was excited to keep going, but then their lives they got on with their lives. And Eric and I were two years deep into making an album that that never that showed no signs of ever being done. It was. It was 200% done, but never quite done. And then here we are, right? Then it's been, and that was 2009 or 2010 when we finally, when Eric and I, Eric, my rock, when he and I finally had a falling out. And what happened was we started producing other people's albums as a thing to keep us occupied. And we made a great record for my niece, Elizabeth Roderick. We made, a, we made Shelby Earle's debut record as a production team. And we made an album for a guy named Eric Hawk. And Eric, and Eric Corson and I worked great together as a production team. Eric had become a really gifted engineer. I had been making records by this point for a long time, and I really felt like I could produce other people. And I, and I, I felt like I was good at it. And we made these three records. We were very proud of them. They sounded amazing. And, and only the Shelby Earl record has had a wide release. But... Eric Corson and I started to have a dispute about this question of engineer and producer. And Eric said, I want to be called the producer too. I'm the one that got the drum sound. I'm the one that's like getting these sounds and that's production. And I said, like a kind of like a fool. I said, well, no, you're the engineer. I'm the producer. That's how this relationship should be. Uh, really looking back at it, I should have given Eric everything he wanted, right? If Eric had said, I want to be called the producer and I want you to be called the, the, uh, uh, the Roto-Rooter man or whatever, I should have said <laughs> fine because whatever, I, I don't need, what do I care? Uh, from his perspective, he was trying to build a reputation for himself as a, as somebody who could make records for people. That's not what I was trying to do. I mean, I, that was one of 25 things that I, that I felt like I could do. But this was, a, this was a job that Eric wanted to have as his job. 
But I was like, listen, man, I'm producing the record and you're engineering it. That's how it should say, that's how it should say it. And we let this dispute fester between us. And Eric is a Scandinavian. So not, I mean, no, no, uh, no offense to Scandinavians, but not really good at communicating, (laughs) not really good at emotional communication. And I was starting to spiral into another place where my beard was long, my tooth was gone, and I was getting, I was falling. I was falling through the floor. I was starting to get paranoid. People, every, you know, I was hearing my uh, pillows were turning to owls. I was hearing voices in the trees. And my good friend, my 10-year-long bandmate and co-conspirator was giving me this bullshit about how he was the producer of these records. And I made a stand that was a dumb stand, a pointless stand. And I, and I fell out with Eric. The final, uh, you know, the capstone of my musical life, I, I, I destroyed that relationship. And so now it's four years later and I've still got 13 tracks of amazing songs with every possible melody. Uh, but I don't have, I don't have a band. I don't even have a bandmate. And I lost my way again. I lost my way in the forest. I spent a lot of time in the last four years on Twitter. And Eventually, my record label got, you know, tired of sending me greeting cards. And sort of everybody has turned their attention to other things. And I remain here, this sort of, uh, this rat king of potential energy. I could release an album really at any time. If I could recapture that feeling that you, that, that when you have it, it's such a profound and empowering feeling that I should just crank out a thing. Don't worry about it. Don't get fussy about it. Just make the thing, make it, make it and then make the next thing and stop worrying about that. This thing needs to be perfect and just, Make it and make the next thing. And when, you, when you're inhabiting that space and you really feel it, you're just un, unbeatable. But to me right now, that just sounds like an incantation that I, I mean, it sounds like I am standing at the door of the, the mines of Moria and I'm reading some elfish inscription and nothing happens. And you're like, I'm reading the right elvish words or whatever, or dwarvish words. Why does the door not open? Because the incantation doesn't, doesn't have any power if you can't access the, the power of it. That, that, that was a really nerdy reference. Hey, I've spent the, <laughs> la- I spent the last four years on the Joko cruise. I, I understand <laughs> how to drop some, some, uh, elf science on people. <laughs> See, art is a weird thing, like music included, because 
when you release something, you don't iterate on it. It's done. It's out there. Mm-hmm. It's finished. You you move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Like I I lived in that world for a long time, and and the industry I work in now, you ship something, you get people's interest, and then you iterate on it, and and you build it, and, and you fix it. Right. And so there's less pressure in my world now to release a polished finished product than there is to just ship something. Right. That's a garbage methodology, by the way. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you on that. <laughs> it, it used to be that software was done when it, when yes. it was released. And that's not true anymore. And iOS eight is the biggest <laughs> piece of garbage I ever used in my life. And it's just like, yeah, they they had pressure to get something out there. And it's, it's, it, it, garbage i could go off on that for quite a while but <laughs> I, I i do not disagree with you on that that's uh it's kind of a it's a melancholy story i feel like you've yeah. you've learned a lot you're you're somebody i would i would aspire to have the experience and knowledge you have now but i think it sounds like you feel very unfinished i am uh, uh the the great um the great tragedy of my life is the tragedy of of incompleteness and the I have finished some things I finished three full length records and an e p and I toured around the world and I walked across Europe from Amsterdam to Istanbul. Those are the things i've finished and in a way what's um, what's wonderful about podcasting with Merlin Mann is that every week I talk to my friend and then the thing is done and I don't have any input into editing it. The (laughs) only thing I can say to Merlin is I don't think we should put that episode out because you and I went on a tirade uh, against all the peoples of the world (laughs) and every, and he and I both have a sort of, you know, the ability to say like, let's not put that one out. And we've, there have been six, probably or seven or 10 maybe (laughs) that we haven't released over the course of three years. But the feeling of like, I have completed this. Like if Merlin and I never did another podcast together, we would have this body of work that, uh, that survives. And even if only one person a year listens to them, um, you know, they are, they are a, uh, they are something I made, but there are these, there are these bugbears, these golem in my life. Uh, I never graduated from college, which I care less and less about all the time. I've never written a book, although I have started and have the notes for a handful of them. I have not found a way to finish like to finish my music career, if that is what I want to do, or to continue my music career, if that's what I want to do. But to just not, not get done is not an end to a thing. It's not like we put out this record and now the band is breaking up and I'm going to go get a job as an investment banker. It's just like, yeah, we worked on this record until everybody hated each other and then I'm the, I'm the last man standing and I don't have, uh, I don't have the ability somehow to marshal my own forces. 
And so, the, you know, I'm 46 years old. I am the age now that John F. Kennedy was when he was assassinated. That is a really weird thing to think. And in a way, John F. Kennedy is sort of frozen in youth and potential. It's what makes him so fascinating. He never had a chance to completely disappoint us. <laughs> and disappointment is such a caustic, corrosive feeling. I don't want disappointment to be the, to be the specter that haunts me. I, I mean, depression is a, is, a, is a worthy adversary. And if I, if I have to fight depression the rest of my life, if I have to fall with the Balrog of depression to the center of Middle Earth, perhaps I will come out the other side, Roderick the White. How about that? I'm, um, I have no words. <laughs> but disappointment is not a worthy adversary. Disappointment is not a, a, a formidable foe that makes you feel like you know if 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 depression gets the better of you like hat tip to depression but disappointment come on i don't want to be defeated by this uh by this like middling flaw and uh and yet every day i wake up and i come down here to my office and i set myself up to get to work on something and I, I rearrange the pens and I, and I line up the paper clips and I go on eBay and then pretty soon it's night and then another year goes by. Um, and so with that, our four-episode journey has to end on an ellipses it kind of does because there is no there uh, uh, this is a choose your own adventure and maybe there are people listening who are like you know what i hate that guy and i hope that he spends the rest of his life disappointed and thwarted by his own uh processes but i think there are other listeners who maybe would say i want to choose the end of this adventure to be that there is another long winter's record or that I don't think anybody cares if I graduate from college, but another long winter's <laughs> record or some kind of other, some kind of music, you know, that is a, that, that represents a, a continuation of this. Well, but, I'll, I'll tell you what, it, like this, this is definitely an ellipses ending. And uh, there are actually a lot of things you've said in just the last 10 minutes that I could talk to you about for hours and and I have no intention of counseling you. I, I'm actually, I have been in the same position and am not really out of the same position. And I would love to discuss it. So when well, you, let's have a, let's have a fifth episode, but that is not about my music career. That's just about all the thousands of ways that an adult man can thwart himself. I think that sounds great. <laughs> I and honestly, I that is a topic that I know all too well. Yes, and I think a lot of our listeners probably do too. I I, I think I, I I find that the most the stuff that's the most painful for me to talk about actually hits home with the most people. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. You get done, uh, you get done talking, and you go like, "Oh, who is going to want to hear that?" And then it turns out that it's yeah, it's useful because because we all don't talk about that stuff. Yeah, and you feel alone. You sit there and you're like, "Oh, I'm such a shabby excuse for a person," and that is a that's a lonely feeling. And then you're like, "Oh, right." A lot of the people I admire also uh, feel that way about themselves. And it, wouldn't it be nice if you could? have a beer with everybody. It really and, would. You know, and that's maybe, maybe why, I mean, maybe it's the great advantage of podcasting and why, um, why it resonates with us so much is that it's, you know, it's like having a beer with somebody that maybe you wouldn't ever get that opportunity in real life. And that's a beautiful sentiment to end on with the promise that you will come back at some point and we will, we will talk further about about this stuff okay agreed all right all, all right, right. Thanks, well Brad. yeah thanks for being here man this has been a great story all right and we will talk to everybody in a week <laughs> <laughs>